0: depending on your level of spiritual discernment and probably life experience too, looking for a church home can be both an exciting and a challenging experience. For instance, maybe you're a brand new Christian and you were told that joining a local church is a pretty good thing to do. It's helpful to your spiritual growth. So you've thought about, well, where should I go? And because you only know maybe a couple of Christians, you decide to go wherever they go to church. It just seems to make sense, right? If they share with me Jesus, I'm sure I could trust them to find a good church to be a part of too. And then there's those who are not new believers, but maybe the Lord has providentially led you to relocate to a new city or a new state or a new neighborhood. Because maybe at your previous church you were a disciple well enough to know that I need to be a part of a local church if I'm going to follow Jesus, especially if I've got a spouse or children. Uh, though it's hard to say goodbye to your previous church, uh, you know for whatever reasons uh, you're going to have to move on. Other practical implications that you have to consider? Uh, so there you are on the internet here in the 21st century. Not the yellow pages, not the white pages, but old Google looking for a church to be a part of. You're talking to classmates, neighbors, and colleagues to see if if they attend a church, and maybe if their church might be a good fit for you. But then there's this third category of people. Looking for a church can be a mixed bag of emotions. They want to be excited and hopeful on the one hand, but they've been hurt. They've been let down. Their expectations for what to look for in a church now tends to swing like a pendulum in a grandfather clock. One week, they're looking for this idealistic, perfect church that seems to meet all their standards. And then the next week, they're, they're kind of making their decisions in a reactionary way. They're basically frustrated, saying, I don't know what I should look for in a church. But anything different than when I came from. Well, maybe that last category describes you or someone you know. You were in a difficult or disappointing situation and, and you're looking for something new, something fresh, something that will meet those needs that your previous church failed to meet. A church that meets you right where you're at. They get it all over the website. A church that asks very little of you, even if that means staying right in your living room, maybe even staying in your sweatpants. Where can you find such a comfortable and convenient church experience? I introduce you to the Metaverse Church, also known as VR Church. VR, or virtual reality, church, describes itself as a spiritual community which exists entirely in the metaverse, or the virtual world, to celebrate God's love for the world, as they say. The makers and leadership of VR church, they make a rather contradicting vision statement, but it's pretty clear. Quote, we believe church can be anywhere at any time, with anyone, even in the metaverse. The metaverse is an immersive virtual reality experience where we can work, socialize, and even go to church. At Metaverse Church, you can interact with an avatar pastor, an avatar congregation, and eyewitness and take part in an avatar baptism service. Their message of what to expect lays before billions of people who have the internet at their disposal. If you want to sign in to Metaverse Church, this is what they say you can expect. Quote, all you need is a virtual reality headset. Then download a certain communication platform off the website. We believe God loves the metaverse and wants everyone to know it. We believe everyone is welcome to church. It doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. So come experience something you have never experienced before. Now, I'm looking over here in particular. I am not suggesting that the members of CCBC scratch their curiosity itch this afternoon and join a metaverse church service. I'm not asking for anyone to sign up for the Anti-Virtual Reality Church Committee or start one at CCBC to protect Christianity in the River Valley. No, I would all encourage us to do something normal and wise. Show back up tonight at 5 p.m. We have the Lord's Supper in person with real people. No avatars are welcome. But One reason I bring this modern example up to our ears this morning is how easy we can replace the core convictions of what an actual church is. And in the process, we can unknowingly, even with the best of intentions, towards a greater end, replace their realistic expectations of what it means to be a Christian. For example, not to be mean or bully or pick on another church, but it is public, so i inform you life church which is a multi campus church that stretches over multiple states even here in fort smith has a statement on their website regarding the usage of virtual church quote at life church we will do anything short of sin to reach people who don't know christ to reach people no one is reaching we'll do things no one is doing well, as Christians, we should all desire to reach people who don't know Jesus. That's a really good inclination to have, right? So in that sense, we should agree with life church's passion to fulfill that good intention, to see the lost come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, as thoughtful and discerning Christians, we should ask ourselves. Does the end justify the means? Does the medium we use to get the gospel out matter to God? Friends, consider what that even means for the church. Is the way we are viewing how to do church going to have a good or bad effect on how people understand what it means to follow Jesus? Not just right now, but three years from now. 30 years from now. With all the great blessings that technology can bring today, a spreading wonderful biblical content all over the world in just a matter of seconds, I believe our generation will face a spiritually toxic after effect if we think virtual church is being a biblical church. If we're going to reach Real people, not avatars, who have a real bad sin problem against a really good and holy God, we're going to need realistic expectations of what that will require of us. An avatar church will not produce over the long haul real Christians who obey Jesus the way he really intended us to. Brothers and sisters, that's because what we win people with is what we win people to. What we win people with is what we win people to. What we communicate about the Christian faith is going to have a profound effect on people's expectations of what it means to be a Christian. And we shouldn't be surprised, should we? Our natural flesh, what I like to call our unredeemed selfishness, will always lean towards comfort over commitment. Convenience, over sacrifice. Catering to my felt needs, over conformity to Christ's likeness. People-pleasing, over pleasing Christ. That means wrong expectations of the Christian life can actually taint and distort our witness for Jesus in ways that either compromise the gospel or it could even gut Christianity from the inside out. So if we're going to follow Jesus faithfully, if we're going to follow Jesus courageously, then we must follow Jesus after his footsteps, according to what we see in Scripture. And by God's grace, if we do that, we will be willing to obey him no matter the cost. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Our sermon passage this morning will cover Mark 6, verses 1 to 29. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 491. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Please follow with me. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Hosea, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, And gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey. Except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. But to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is God's word. As a result of our time together, my hope is that we will come to realize that in following Jesus, we will not have difficult circumstances removed from us. But if we are enabled by God to walk this narrow path, We know we'll make it to the end because Jesus has walked before us. At this point in Mark's gospel, he's going to unfold for us a series of events of three expectations that you can bank the rest of your Christian life on if you continue following Jesus. If you're taking notes, I'll mention all three up front. Expectation number one, our Christian faith won't always have a warm homecoming. Our Christian faith won't always have a warm homecoming. That's verses 1 to 6a. Expectation number two. Our Christian witness requires confidence, community, contentment, and commitment. Our Christian witness requires confidence, community, contentment, and commitment. That's verses 6b to 13 And expectation number three, our Christian values will eventually collide with our culture's vices. Our Christian values, or you could say beliefs or convictions, will eventually collide with our culture's values or worldview or ungodly behaviors. Either way. Expectation number one, our Christian faith won't always have a warm homecoming. Uh, Here in Mark's Gospel, we are now transitioning, as we're looking at Jesus in the Gospels, from his ministry in Capernaum to briefly going back home to Nazareth. Look in verse 1 with me. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Uh, We know from Mark chapter 1, verse 9, that Jesus came from Nazareth, of Galilee. Uh, Luke's gospel emphasizes that it was in Nazareth, that Jesus's most formative years as a young boy and to a teenager and to a young adult, where he was raised. Luke 4 verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As you may recall, Nazareth was not New York City. It wasn't Rome. It was really nothing to talk much about. It was a small and obscure town, population somewhere between 500 and 2,000 people. It was located about 20 to 25 miles southeast of Capernaum. And like I already said, no one rich and famous, no one powerful, no one really worth writing home about had come from Nazareth. In fact, Nazareth isn't even talked about in the Old Testament, like many of the other towns and cities that are prophesied. But in God's profound and mysterious wisdom, this is precisely where the heaven-sent Son of God would walk among ordinary common folk in this very obscure community. After some time had elapsed and his itinerant ministry, his preaching circuit had taken place throughout the Galilean landscape, Jesus had decided to return back to his old stomping grounds there in Nazareth, This is the place where he was just a boy that grew up to be a teenager. He was the first of at least five children in his family. The names of his half-brothers and half-sisters are in Mark 6, verse 3. Uh, He lived there with his mom, Mary, and his stepdad, Joseph. Uh, We know from Matthew 13, verse 55, that Joseph, his stepfather, uh, was a carpenter by trade. Uh, The word literally means a builder or a worker with hands, uh, someone who used stone or wood to build things. Uh, In those days, it would not have been uncommon for a carpenter to build not only roof structures for houses, but also wooden structures such as oil mills, furniture, wagons, chariot wheels, and barges and boats. Uh, Together with other builders, they also built towers, storage facilities, military defense walls, bridges and other things. Uh, Being a carpenter, it would have been common for Joseph, as a Jewish man, to teach his young boys his trade. That's why it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus, growing up in his father's home, just like children, even in this building today, and obviously you, once upon a time, he had learned the same hard-working trade as his stepdad. That means this. Aside from the weird and strange and unhelpful pictures that many people try to make of Jesus, Jesus wasn't a soft skinned perfume salesman at Belks. He wasn't working the lotion section at Bath and Body Works. Now, to be certain, there's nothing wrong to work at those places. I actually like the candles. Amen. Can I? Okay, maybe the ladies. Okay, there's nothing wrong working there. That's not what Jesus was doing in Nazareth. I make this point once again, so that we get a right picture in our minds of a biblical view of Jesus. He was not a weak man. He was not a lazy, slothful teenager who wanted handouts in life. From the time he was probably 10 to 12, even to definitely into his teenage years all the way to his public ministry beginning when he was 30. He was a man who worked hard with his hands. His hands were calloused. His body toned with muscle as he wielded stone and wood and all the tools that would be needed. Beloved, if we would have looked Jesus in the face, he would not have been beautiful to us by our standards. What you would have seen is a man who had worked long days under that hot Palestinian sun with sweat dropping from his brow. After all, verse 3 says he was a carpenter. Friends, as a pastor, I would say probably once every five counseling sessions or hallway conversations, I'm always trying to encourage believers in whatever vocation God has given them to not over spiritualize me as your pastor. You don't need to think that being in vocational ministry is somehow better or more important in value than other vocations. Vocational ministry, if you're paid by a church or paid by a missions agency to do kingdom work, that is one calling with its own weight and value in the kingdom of God. But friends, Many other vocations that God in his common grace has delegated to us, to you, are still ways you can honor the Lord with your life. So whether you're caring for children and changing diapers or driving trucks and changing tires, whether that's working in public school or raising kids in homeschooling or working in a computer at a desk job, or working as a dentist or a doctor, working as a lawyer or a landscaper, working as a car salesman, plumber, or installing indoor fireplaces. Friends, all of these vocations can honor the Lord. It would be blasphemy to say anything different. Because if I said anything different, Jesus wasted the first 30 years of his life. And that's blasphemy. Before he was a preacher, before he would reveal himself to the world as the son of God incarnate, he was a carpenter. But why are your vocations worthwhile? Why are they honorable ways to spend your life? They are worthwhile, not because of how much money you make, and not because of the title you hold, but because of the one you are ultimately serving as you work. Did you hear that? That's a Christian understanding of work. Your value is not in your salary or your paycheck. It's not in your title or how much respect you get. The value in what you do in this life is ultimately as much as our hearts are focused on the one we're serving as we're working. What do the scriptures teach us? Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. If you're looking for a book to read this year to help you think more Christianly about whatever you're doing in your work these days, The Gospel at Work, written by Sebastian Trager and Greg Gilbert. The Gospel at Work. I would highly commend it it will encourage you to see that the Lord is pleased with all sorts of vocations. Back to our text. Here in Mark 6, Jesus returns to Nazareth, but some time has elapsed since he packed his bags and left home. That means some things have changed. Jesus is not a little boy anymore. He's not even just another carpenter anymore. He's much more than just a carpenter. After his public ministry had taken off at around age 30 or so, he returned to Nazareth as a man on a mission from God. And what was that mission again? Well, look back in Mark 1 with me really quick. Mark 1. It's one of those hinge verses to understand the gospel of Mark. Mark 1, verses 38 to 39. What was Jesus' mission? Got to always go back to Mark 1 so you can understand the rest of Mark. What was that mission? Mark 1, verses 38 to 39. Here it is. He told his disciples, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. All right, you can go back to Mark 6. In other words, Nazareth here in Mark 6 is just the next stop on the GPS route. It was the next place for Jesus to go before he would head towards Jerusalem. And when Jesus came back home, and as was Jesus' custom, he went into the synagogue to teach. How do you think his hometown responded to his ministry? Look at verses 2 and 3. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Jose and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. I imagine that at least some of you, at some point, have been back to your old high school or your old college that you graduated from, whether it was a class reunion or an annual homecoming football game. How was it? Did it live up to its expectations and hype? Or was it a flop? How was it talking to old friends? How was it talking about the good old days? For all those armchair quarterbacks who thought they were good, the glory days. The days when you walked the halls, the days when you drove that car, the days when you had that weird hairdo, the days when you were friends with such and such, the fun times, the best days of our lives. It's strangely put sometimes. Well, For Jesus, it was not a homecoming like we might expect. Instead of a warm reception that you might get, As you walk through the doors of your old home church, it was a cold shoulder Sabbath day for Jesus. The synagogue was freezing cold in their affection for him. Instead of a welcome home, Jesus got a, who do you think you are? Instead of a friendly doormat to greet him, he got the door shut in his face all of this, friends, not from Jerusalem, not from Rome, not even from Capernaum at this point. It was his hometown of Nazareth. You see, people recognized him as the guy. Mark even says here, the man. It's just another dude. He worked as a carpenter. He's the son of Mary. We know his family. They're not weird, but there's nothing special about them. When Jesus stood up to address the congregation of the Jews in the synagogue, they didn't receive what he had to say with open arms. There was a scowl on their face. Arms were probably folded, staring him down with eyes that could pierce his body with hatred. Friends, that day in the synagogue, there were not people dropping to their knees and adoring him like the woman who was healed of a 12-year disease in Mark 5. In fact, these people were shocked, and they were rather unimpressed with Jesus. On the one hand, they couldn't deny Jesus' powerful ability to teach with unparalleled authority. In other words, you know good preaching when you hear it. And once you hear good preaching, you'll never want to go back to anything else. So when Jesus spoke, the level of teaching went skyrocketed. And you know what was flooring them? Jesus had no formal rabbinical training. For our common tongue today, that means Jesus would have not had a seminary degree. No THM, no MDiv, no MA, no PhD. He would have never had that formal training, and yet... His knowledge of Scripture blew them away. His unwavering confidence to claim that the Scriptures he quoted from the Law and the Prophets, he then told them, they're talking about me. It left them astonished, verse 2 says. That's the same reaction that the synagogue had of Jesus in Mark 1. Verse 22, they were floored, jaws were dropped, they were amazed. They also couldn't deny the powerful and supernatural miracles that Jesus did all throughout Galilee. Now these folks probably had traveled from Nazareth to Capernaum to see some of these miracles, or they had heard about it through the grapevine. They had heard about a leper being healed, demons being cast out, a dead girl being raised to life. They couldn't deny his preaching, they couldn't deny his healing miracles, but all they remembered was a teenage boy who worked with their dad, a regular guy in an obscure town with an ordinary trade from an average Jewish family. It left them scratching their heads. It left many of them with hardened hearts. They were becoming agitated and annoyed with Jesus. Everything they heard from him, everything they saw in him, caused them to be hostile towards him. That's why Mark says in verse three, they took offense to him. And as soon as Jesus was done teaching in the synagogue, he saw their lack of faith in response. Look at verse four what Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Beloved, familiarity can bring contempt. Familiarity can bring about or breed contempt. To my non-Christian friends, Does Jesus offend you? When you hear Christians talk about Jesus, when you hear God's word taught and preached and talked about, does it annoy you? Does it anger you? You ever ask yourself, why does it bother you when you hear the name of Jesus? Well, there's a reason probably because your view of Jesus is too small and your view of yourself is just too big fellow brothers and sisters we too have something to hear today if familiarity can breed contentment we should be very watchful over our own hearts that we don't get too familiar with Jesus let me say that again If you've been in church for any length of time, if you're a member of this congregation and you've sat under preaching, you've partaken of the Lord's Supper, you have heard God's word taught at women's Bible study or in the children's ministry or in this pulpit, don't take for granted the light God has shown you. Because the book of Hebrews is saturated with warnings. Consider a few of them. Hebrews 2 verse 1, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Hebrews 3 verses 12 to 14, take care brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Friends, make this your prayer this week. Pray that God would make you uncomfortable with your unbelief. Pray that God would make you uncomfortable, uneasy when you start entertaining doubts about him. Members of CCBC, if you benefit from the teaching here in any way, we should never take for granted all the ways that God is blessing our life through this ministry. Friends, to whom much is given, much is required. As you read throughout the Old Testament, God sent prophet after prophet after prophet, calling his wayward people to repent, to come back to their covenant-keeping God of Israel, But what are the descriptions that God gives his people? You're a faithless harlot. You're stiff-necked. You're rebellious. I send you my prophets and you reject them. You even kill some of them. Consider Jeremiah that we read earlier. They wanted to muzzle his mouth. He was God's spokesman for their eternal good. Consider the apostles of the New Testament. Consider faithful preachers throughout Christianity's generations. Friends, we should never become familiar with God's blessings as he speaks to us through our his servants. Now, Friends, one of the greatest indictments on a local church is if God sends them a faithful pastor and they reject him. The day of judgment is going to be a rude and severe awakening for the congregations that have despised Christ's gifts to his church. Beloved, pray that we all would respond to the light God has given each one of us to thank him for all the ways he convicts us, he encourages us, and he teaches us. Friends, Jesus, he was a prophet because he spoke the very words of God but make no mistake about it, he was more than a carpenter. He was more than just Joseph's stepson. He was more than simply the Virgin Mary's son. He was more than just another prophet. Jesus walked this earth as Emmanuel, God with us. A synagogue teacher did not show up in Nazareth that day. God incarnate was rejected by the town who had the most exposure to him. Familiarity can breed contempt. Friends, take heart. Never take for granted the light God has given us, what mercy he has shown us. Praise God if you've got believers in your family. Praise God if you've got believers in your hometown. But friends, countless Christians throughout Christianity, throughout the generations, they live the same shoes that Jesus did. They go back home, they renounce what they used to believe, and they're disowned. Don't be surprised. If you find unbelief closer to home than you realize. Expectation number two. Our Christian witness requires confidence, community, contentment, and commitment. Mark tells us in the second half of verse 6, look with me in verse 6, 6b, that Jesus moved on after he saw the utter unbelief before him, and he continued teaching. He continued obeying Mark 1. I'm moving on to new villages, other towns to talk about and teach and call people to repentance about the kingdom of God. Uh, Then, after Jesus fulfills some of these short-term mission trips, he then does something he has not done in his ministry yet, not at least in this way. He calls the 12, his closest disciples, and he delegates now to them his work that's going to be carried out through them they are later called the apostles. We know from verse 30, Mark alludes to that, they would be like ambassadorial witnesses who represent Jesus everywhere they would go. In this section, it's, it's really kind of like a mini preview of the Great Commission that we read about in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. If you're not familiar with that term, the Great Commission, that's really just the marching orders that Jesus gives the church to make disciples of all nations and teach people to obey Jesus. We see that carried out throughout the book of Acts and throughout the rest of the New Testament. But here in Mark 6, we see for the very first time that Jesus is no longer doing everything by himself. Jesus has laid the groundwork. Jesus knows his time is short. Uh, don't you even remember in Mark 1? After he began preaching, he went and found some fishermen, some teenage boys, maybe in the early 20s, and he said, follow me and I will make you what? fishers of men. Jesus never forgot that. That was his plan from the very beginning. Or maybe even recall Mark 3. Turn back with you in Mark 3. Mark 3, 13 to 15. We see that Jesus had told them, kind of in a outdoor classroom setting, hey boys, about to get y'all ready. About to go through boot camp. There's going to come a day. There's going to come a time. I'm going to send you. Look at Mark 3, verses 13 to 15. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. They came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. You can go back to Mark 6 now. So on this first short-term missions trip, what was required of the twelve disciples? As followers of Jesus today, what will be required of us as members of Christ's church as we carry out the mission he has given us as disciples of Christ. Let me give you four principles. Principle number one, confidence. Confidence, look at Mark six, verse seven. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. If you're one of those folks who like to underline in their Bible, these are one of those verses you can do that if you're cool with that. Notice, it is Jesus, who is the source, the equipper, and the commanding officer when it comes to doing work in the kingdom of God. Notice, he called the twelve. He sent them out, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now, these were not kind of Lone Ranger Christianities trying to impress Jesus and doing their own thing. They had to be commissioned. They had to be authorized. They had to be equipped in order to do Christ's work. And uniquely to the apostles' ministry, they were given the ability by Jesus to perform miracles that would attest to the saving power and truth claims of Jesus. Also, Jesus gave them this authority uniquely because they would represent Jesus after Jesus was gone. If you want to know if you're a true apostle, well, 2 Corinthians twelve twelve tells us one of the proofs that you're a true apostle. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. But the point Mark is making for us here is that these disciples, they were not the bravest. They were not the most eloquent. They were not really in your top 25 draft pick of people you want on your mission strip team. They were not the sharpest tools in the toolbox. And so Jesus had to remind them, your confidence in this mission Cannot rest in you. It must rest in the one who gave you the marching orders and the ability to do my work. I mean, think about it for a moment. They had witnessed, up to this point, maybe about a year, they've been walking with Jesus. They had witnessed his teachings. They had witnessed demons being cast out. They had witnessed diseases of being healed. They had witnessed Jesus calm a violent storm with the word. Listen, they had taken the first year of seminary, Jesus as the president of Jesus of Nazareth Seminary, and they got the best education you could ever get before you went on a mission trip. They saw that Jesus had authority over everything, creation, demons, sickness. They had no reason to put their confidence in themselves, but they had every reason but their confidence in Christ. Friends, that's, that's the kind of confidence that we have to have as the church. He gives the marching orders. He gives us spiritual gifts. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And if any good ever happens in and through this ministry, it's because God is working through us, not because of us. Friends, God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. He does it all the time. He saved me and he uses me. There's your proof. You don't need to be eloquent. Think of Moses. You don't need to come from some well-known to-do family. Think of Jesus. To the wind with how much education formerly you have to make you qualified on a piece of paper. Jesus didn't have a lick of it. As Spurgeon said, we don't make preachers. God does. Friends, that's not a bash towards education. Go get your education. That's not a bash towards hard work. Work hard. But, friends, at the end of the day, of any good, anything eternally significant, anything supernatural that will ever happen through this ministry, it will only be because we are bowing at the feet of Jesus. And He uses us for His purposes. Now, notice number two community. Community. If we're going to follow Jesus, it requires biblical Christian community. Look at verse 7 again. And He called the 12 and began to send them out. Did you notice? Two by two. Why did Jesus do this? I asked Avery and the kids this in family worship time this week, and I think Avery's just gotten used to living with me. She asked, well, so they didn't get lost. I'm putting that in my sermon. Yes, think logically here. If they had any direction sense like me, maybe they needed to be paired up with someone who knew exactly where they were going. Someone who could actually retrace the steps, logistics, safety. Also think about encouragement, fellowship. Friends, it gets hard out there ministering to unbelievers, working alongside them, living among them, and you're trying to do the Lord's work in his own way, but man, it gets hard. You get discouraged. You're pumped up on Sunday. By Wednesday, you're just tapping out. Friends, we need each other. We need each other to stick together, and we need each other to do his work together. I think this example here is really a seedbed for what we see throughout the New Testament. Friends, the Christian life is not meant to be alone. Lone Ranger Christianity, Avatar Church Christianity needs to die. I've only got a few things that I'm sure of of why I'm in Fort Smith, Arkansas take care of my family and our dog, pastor this congregation, and try to help other pastors and their churches push back on this notion of church hopping and Lone Ranger Christianity. That's the legacy I want to leave behind, that we need each other, we need to be committed to a body of believers, and we need to do that together until we make it to glory. Friends, that's why you have pastors. That's why there's deacons. That's why there's church membership and church discipline. That's why missionaries who think they're called of God but no church has ever put their stamp on it are deceived. The missionary task, the church is behind it. The discipleship task, the church is behind it. A pastor is not a pastor unless he has a flock. And a flock is aimless without a pastor. Do you see the relationship here? It's not rocket science. It's God's wisdom. Friends, they went out in pairs, because like all of us, the road is long, it's hard, and we need someone to tell us from time to time, hey, don't grow weary. Don't grow faint-hearted. God's faithful. Remember that song we sang last Sunday? Remember how good God's been to you? Remember how how much God's done in your life? We need those reminders, more than we realize. Number three, contentment. Contentment. Look Mark 6, verses 8 and 9. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Julie and I have been married. Is it going on 14? All right, going on 14 years. One of the things I learned about Julie, I think even in engagement season, as we were planning for the honeymoon, is that she and I don't pack the same. Now, we don't have any stereotypes in ours because I always do the opposite. I would show up to trips with two bags, you know, always thinking of the worst case scenario. I learned really quick that you can fit a lot in one bag. And now with a family of five today, she is still discipling me that we can travel much lighter and cheaper if I just follow her leadership when it comes to packing. Friends, that's what Jesus is doing here on this short-term mission trip. He said, boys, travel lightly. Travel lightly and trust me. The people that receive your ministry and are changed by the power of God, they're going to open up their homes to you. They're going to take care of you. They're going to put food on the table. You're going to have to trust me. Friends, contentment is not something you learn in a classroom. Contentment is what you learn when you have very little. Ladies at CCBC, you just got done studying Philippians 4, right? Paul, an apostle, exhorting a church that he planted who had not supported him for some season of time. What did Paul tell the Philippians? Hey, listen, don't be discouraged. I don't have no beef with you. While you couldn't support me for a season, God was teaching me a lesson. He was teaching me the secret of being content in every circumstance. Friends, Jesus was doing so many things by saying, travel in pairs and travel lightly. Trust me, you're not gonna need as much as you think because the Lord always seems to find a way to care for his children when they're doing his work by faith. Friends, I don't know where you're at today. That might mean financial means. That might mean academic needs, vocational needs, maybe even facility needs like we have long-term. Or maybe you desire a helpmate and a husband or wife. Listen, the Lord knows what you need to do his work. He can be trusted. As Spurgeon once said, remember this, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there number four commitment commitment look at verses 10 to 13 and he said to them whenever you enter a house stay there until you depart from there and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them and they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Like Jesus had experienced in Nazareth, in his own hometown, he was warning his disciples that people would also reject them along the way. He was teaching them, you're going to have to be resolved, committed to this mission. Some will receive you, some will not. So Jesus gave them a principle that we too need to consider He says, when you are utterly rejected and you're facing those who have unteachable hearts and they are refusing and even becoming hostile, he says, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Friends, as you share Christ with others that you love, pray that God would give you spiritual discernment. As you share Christ with others, pray that God would give you Discernment. Friends, we need God's help to know when to speak up and keep going. And we need spiritual discernment to be silent. If there's anything the Christian church right now needs to get, special social media, is to learn the spiritual discipline of silence. Not every post, not every email, not every blog, not every sermon, not every text, not every email— deserves a response. Jesus was utterly rejected. And he moved on. The disciples would be utterly rejected. Dust off your feet. Move on. Friends, as a Christian church, there are going to be times where people will receive your ministry. And there are going to be times where they're not. Pray for discernment. when you need to persevere and keep speaking, and when you need to be silent and move on. Friends, this last section here in Mark 6 is really now a conclusion on one man's life who had prepared the way for Jesus, who had preached repentance. We don't hear much about John the Baptist's life in the Gospel of Mark. It's interesting. Gospel of John, good bit. Matthew and Luke, a whole lot more than Mark. Mark doesn't have a whole lot to say about John the Baptist except two bookends. Mark 1 verse 14, it just says he was arrested. That's it. We don't don't even know why. We don't know by who until we get to Mark 6. Why was John the Baptist arrested? Let's look at it together. Expectation number three. Our Christian values will eventually collide with our culture's vices. Look with me starting in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. By the character and courage of even just one godly person can make you feel deeply uncomfortable if you're living in sin. The presence of a godly person's character, a godly person's courage, can make someone who's living in sin deeply uncomfortable uncomfortable. In verse 14, we read about King Herod, but he's better known as King Herod Antipas, who is the tetrarch over the district of a Galilean region. Uh, Herod did quite a few evil things, but two, Mark brings out, that were uniquely egregious, and it caused John to be unnerved that these sins were swept under the rug. Adultery, he had an affair, and He had married his brother, Philip's wife, which was forbidden by Jewish law. A man in a high-ranking leadership got away with flaunting his sin, sweeping it under the rug, and John said, no. That man needs to be confronted. He needs to be called to repentance. You know why? Verse 20 says, John was a righteous and a holy man. He feared God more than he feared man. Ironically, Herod had a weird respect for John the Baptist, had him arrested, but Mark says he kept him safe. Like, I need to get you off the preaching circuit, but I'm going to kind of just keep you in prison. He actually didn't disagree with John. He heard him gladly because his conscience was killing him. I know that preacher's right. My conscience bears witness every time he speaks to me, I know I'm wrong. But because it would have been too costly to divorce Herodias, to renounce publicly his sin, he remained unrepentant. Proverbs 29 verse 1 came true, didn't it? He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Friends, if you're in here today and you've been living in sin and a brother and sister in Christ has been calling you to repentance, you need to respond in faith to the conviction God is laying on your heart. Don't ignore it. Don't suppress it. Don't blame shift. Don't make excuses. Don't sweep it under the rug because there may come a time where you no longer feel God's presence anymore. That's what the Bible calls unbelief, a hardened heart. You'll also notice that Herod's unlawfully bound new wife, Herodias, she was not exactly the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31. She was quite treacherous. She had a grudge against John. Just another side note about sin. Sin will make you cover up other sins, and sin will mess up your judgment that you can't even call sin, sin anymore. Herodias was an awful wife. She had a twisted and perverted daughter. The whole family was a mess. Incest, adultery, affairs, hedonism, all over the place. Because one sin, if it's not dealt with, will eventually cover up other sins. So what happened to John? What did it cost John to call this man to repentance who cared about his soul eternally more than a prison cell? It cost him his life. As we see there, parents, you you see this graphic story of a man's head being put on a platter. If your kids have questions about that grotesque and awful demonstration, pray for wisdom on this. Maybe talk to your children about Christianity outside of the river valley. Talk to them about Christian missionaries who've given their life on the field. Brothers and sisters in Christ right now around the world, in Iraq or Afghanistan or sedan, and other places where Mark chapter 6 isn't a sermon on Sunday, it's a real possibility. Read Christian biographies with your kids as early as you can. Christianity is not a violent religion, but if you follow Jesus, it can be bloody. We follow a Savior who bled to death. We follow a Savior who went to Calvary with thorns on his head, We follow a Savior who bore up the wrath of God Almighty. And by the shedding of his blood, we are made clean and forgiven by God. Friends, Christianity is not a clean and tidy, always comfortable avatar experience. It's bloody, it's hard, and you're called to carry a cross. Let's not soften the blows of Scripture. Let the edges of the Bible cut us every once in a while. I love what Ed Welch says. Some sermons ought to leave churches trembling at the end. And I pray Mark 6 would be that for us. Do you remember John the Baptist? When he was at the beginning of his ministry? He said something that a lot of Christians quote, It's an admirable prayer. I've even seen some tattoos of this. John 3, verse 30. He, Christ, must increase. I must decrease. He wanted to be like his Lord. He wanted to be humble. He wanted to be used of God. And John the Baptist was. And it cost him his life in the end. For some, following Jesus may cost you your job. It may cost you relationships. It may cost you popularity and comfort. It may cost relationships when you go back home. It did for Jesus. It did for John the Baptist. Look up how all the apostles died. For others, it may cost you your freedom. It may cost you your life. Either way, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl who loves King Jesus has a time limit stamp on their life. John the Baptist didn't have a 45-year ministry. He didn't have an internet website, grace to you, desiring God, or whatever ministry you might grow from. He never got that. He had about an 18-month ministry. And then God said, you're done. Friends, if we're going to have a realistic expectation of following Jesus, we have to realize that sooner or later our Christian values are going to collide with our culture's vices. Elizabeth Elliott once said, evil will come, but I must obey. Evil will come, but I must obey. Friends, whether that is dealing with things like abortion, racism, premarital sex, adulterous affairs, transgenderism, homosexualism, Uh, and other vices like gossip and lying. Friends, we are called to be the salt of the earth. We are, as the church, the light of the world. Ephesians 5.11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Friends, look at this last verse in Mark 6. It's a heavy and hard passage, right? We've been talking about realistic expectations in following Jesus. Look at verse 29 once again when his disciples, this is John the Baptist's disciples, heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This verse would serve as a preview for Jesus' disciples one day. Jesus one day would be arrested. Jesus would be put on trial, and Jesus would suffer unjustly. He would die on a cross for the sins of all of us, who would turn from our sins and trust in him, and then Jesus would be placed in a tomb. But unlike John the Baptist's tomb, three days later, Jesus's tomb was empty. Friends, if we're going to follow Christ, there are going to be difficult times ahead. But if we're following Christ, we will be enabled to walk this narrow way because Jesus has already walked it before us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that the sharp edges of Mark 6 would cut us, whether we are in a make-believe avatar kind of world and how we think about Christianity Or we know, brothers and sisters right now, that are being violently persecuted, run out of town, rejected in their hometown. Lord, I pray that we as a church would be reminded our confidence is not in us, but in you. Lord, give us a vision of the cross. Give us a vision of that empty tomb. Give us a sweet vision of the day that's coming, that Christ will return for his people. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.